Welcome to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes they care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. Today's guest is Olympic gold medalist, Jill Officer. She's won multiple curling championships all over the world, traveled all over the planet, and has been a wonderful representative for Team Canada since winning the gold in 2014. I sat down with Jill Officer to talk about sports psychology, the transition from Olympic champion to regular citizen, and her dedication to mentorship and the curling community in Winnipeg and in Canada. Thank you for listening to the Because and Effect podcast. My name is Nolan Bicknell, and I'm now joined by a very special guest over Zoom. We have the 2014 Olympic gold medalist, Jill Officer. Thank you so much, Jill, for being on the podcast. Thanks. I'm uh, happy to be here. So curling gold medalist 2014. I have had your teammate Jennifer Jones on the podcast as well. I'm thinking eventually we'll get all four members. Maybe you can hook me up with uh, some contact information <laughs> after just to get the full the full scope of things. Uh, but I have been sort of thinking about like I had John Montgomery on the podcast as well. I've um, uh, Janine Stevens as well. So I've had a few, you know, sports sports experts and, and champions and, and gold medalists on the, on the show. But I want to talk to you not about the gold medal per se and, and about that journey, because there you know, you've been interviewed thousands of times about that. I want to talk about the transition from champion to regular citizen a little bit. You gave a great speech at the Endow Manitoba conference uh, a couple of weeks ago now, but maybe just like Give me a, a bit of a of the backstory about your experience at the 2014 games, winning the gold, and then coming back to regular citizenry life and, and how that transition went for you. Right. So after we won the Olympics in 2014, we came home to Winnipeg um, and the red carpet was literally rolled out for us at the mm -hmm. airport. So uh, I think we arrived home at 10 at night. It was minus 50 uh, at home here. And I, I, I think there was, I don't know how many hundreds of people were at the airport to greet us. So it, it was a wild welcome home. Uh, I think a lot of that impact on the community had to do with the fact that we lived and trained in Manitoba, whereas a lot of Olympians have to move and centralize, uh, elsewhere in the, in the country. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when we got back, um, it, yeah, it was very busy. I mean, you know, it's, it was one thing to deal with media, which we were used to. Uh, but the bigger challenge to me was dealing with requests to be here, there, everywhere, um, how to manage that, um, what what to charge for an appearance right. and for my time and, and all those sorts of things. So left me in some uncomfortable situations, I will say at times. But, um, you know, about six months after the Olympics, um, I mean, I guess I already knew that I was, I was feeling this way, but, um, I was just exhausted. Mm. Uh, it was, it was mm. a lot to handle a lot to manage. So when we went to step on the ice for our season, uh, the next September, I think our first event was, uh, in, in Stockholm. And, uh, I remember sitting in the, in the hotel room with the girls and I don't even remember what we were talking about, but I ended up in tears because, I just wanted, I was thankful that the season was starting to some extent because it, it was what I know yeah. or knew it was normal. Um, comfort zone. it was, yeah, it was, it was more of a comfort zone. And so while I was happy that the season was starting again, I was already behind the eight ball in terms mm. of energy levels and, you know, my gas tank wasn't 
like nearly full <laughs> and here we were going into a season and that's supposed to be when you're at your freshest right yeah. so um that transition was really tough uh for me to becoming an olympic gold medalist and how to manage all of that how to manage the image how to manage the appearances how mm. to manage energy how to manage still being an elite athlete um because it was a real struggle for me to continue training like off ice summer training um and to just really put much time or or commitment into anything right. except getting through the day <laughs> jeez yeah I, I mean curling is is a team sport but it's also very individualized in the sense that it's all up to when you're taking your shot and when you're you know it's all up to you essentially there's obviously the the sweeping and, and whatnot but um did being on a team help or hinder the like was it more difficult because you didn't want to let your team down or was it helpful because you could confide in them because they were going through the same thing or what was that team dynamic like when you were kind of transitioning through this period uh yeah I think some of the other girls felt uh, a similar struggle um you know some some could care less about doing appearances so just said no all the time <laughs> um and it was a struggle to kind of figure out you know how how we do things as a team and how we do things as individuals and where that line was drawn mm -hmm. So um, there was some challenges through that, but I, I think there was certainly a lot of relatable aspects that we each felt in mm. terms of trying to manage all of that. Yeah, understandable for sure. So like mental health has been at the forefront of many conversations, many industries, many sports, uh, maybe for the last few years. But when you when you were coming up and when you were first, uh, you know, as a kid starting playing sports, I know you played soccer and a whole bunch of different sports as well. What was the approach to mental health and sort of sports psychology back then versus how you approached it in when you were a professional? I almost look back at it as non-existent at that time. I mean, maybe I'm dating myself a bit. I mean, I am in my late 40s, but, um, you know, I didn't sort of hit the elite scene until I was, I don't know, in my 30s already. Mm -hmm. Um and I, I think that it, it was more so in the latter half of my elite career that I, I think the mental health thing started becoming uh, more prominent in my mind and mm -hmm. more prominent for me that I recognized why certain things were happening. But when I was in juniors, even from, you know, you look at a nutrition standpoint or a fitness standpoint or or that sports psychology, mental performance standpoint, it just wasn't as big of a, a thing, particularly in curling. And I always look back at it as when I was in juniors, curling was not an official Olympic sport. Mm. So Jennifer and I won the Canadian juniors in 1994, but it was only in 1998 that curling actually appeared as an official Olympic sport. So when we were in juniors, it just wasn't really a thing. And I think as curling uh, appeared on the Olympic program and continued to gain popularity and uh, and then there was more expectation sort of put on the athletes who were trying to get to the Olympics. And so now we see that stuff all the time, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm now the high performance manager for Curl Manitoba and I deal with a lot of youth and in a high performance capacity. And we, you know, talk about all these aspects. And I often think back to when I was their age, <laughs> uh, and, and I didn't have any of those resources, like nothing. And, and in fact, I actually said to one girl at our program last night with the way she was sweeping, I said, 
you know, make sure you you adjust your your neck and your shoulders and do it this way so that you don't have long-term problems. Mm -hmm. And in my head, I was thinking about myself because of the way I swept when I was a teenager that no one sort of taught me a little bit differently so that I uh, didn't have sort of the, the shoulder and neck problems that I right. still have. <laughs> well, yeah. And no one taught us like same thing. I, I played hockey growing up and, and still play a lot of sports and I, like the sports psychology back then was win and suck it up and you're fine and get out there and play. And you're, you know what I mean? So there was no con conversation about how are you feeling? Are you visualizing anything? Are you having these, you know, it was just not even a part of the part of the zeitgeist of conversation. So it, it's fascinating to see nowadays um, just the difference in approach that that people are taking when you when you're coaching and now helping and mentoring all these kids uh, like how what is how are they different from when we were kids, would you say when it comes to their approach to the sport? Right. Well, I, th I think that um, they just have more resources. They have mm. more access to things. I mean, we have the internet now, so <laughs> that's, uh, that's huge in terms of, um, you know, getting information, but we also just have more to offer. And I think the way I see it is that we're, we're now developing these kids from all the high performance aspects to hopefully move them into high performance, but also to just keep them involved in, in curling because mm -hmm. it is a lifelong sport and how I see that different from when I was, even when, like, even when we won the first, our first Canadian Scotties championship in 2005, we even at that time didn't really have all the resources that we probably should have had to win sure. the Scotties. Mm -hmm. So when we won the Scotties and then of course the, the games were coming to Vancouver, just a few years, the Olympic games were coming to Vancouver just a few years later. So it, we went from zero to 60 in terms mm -hmm. of all the resources of like mental performance, um, nutrition, fitness, uh, you know, uh, physio, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Like it, it, whereas now what we do is we build them, with all of those things, those aspects in mind, we build the athletes from there and then they move into elite, you know, where it was kind of like backwards when, when we did it. It's funny thinking back, you know, I remember being younger and hearing so often, oh, you guys don't know how good you have it. And now we're like, oh, you guys have no idea how good you actually have it. And it's just like this cycle of you have no idea how good you have it. And it's yeah. funny to think about that. Yeah, yeah, I know my uh, my, my daughter's uh, going to be 11 shortly and uh, it, it's just, you know, you you reflect back on your own and you want better for your child and uh, so you want to do things differently and, and uh, but yeah, mm -hmm. so it's funny to watch her go through some of this stuff and, you know, and me try to talk to her about some things, but, you know, typical yeah. parent-child relationships. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. I think, did you mention she was into dance or did I or what was she uh, no what, she's into curling oh, actually great. cool yeah awesome. she's in her in her second year of curling and she's uh gung-ho wants to do the one of the programs that i run uh is a development program through curl manitoba and it's all you need is two years of curling experience so uh she is gung-ho to start that next year so my dad w coached me in hockey back in the day and it's the i mean the father son and mother daughter you know dynamic is always interesting as a coach do you find your like does she listen to you you're a world champion gold medalist or does she go like mom I know like shut up or you know like what's the vibe yeah it's a good, totally <laughs> like normal parent like mother-daughter relationship where 
Uh, and I think, I don't know, I think, I'm thinking we're in a bit of a transition here because, um, you know, they, she, she's gone out to curl and sometimes we just go out for fun to throw rocks nice. and I might try to give her a tip here and there, but she really doesn't want to hear it. Like most kids so from funny. their parents, despite my history, <laughs> Expertise. right? Expertise, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, but oh, then uh, I went out to her league and they were doing skills and I ended up on her sheet and we were doing some like... Um, drills of like sliding through these like pylons and she thought that was really cool and then it made her realize because I wasn't just telling her I was telling all the mm. other kids on the sheet too and it made her realize the impact that it had on what she was doing so we talked about it on the way home and she I think had a change of heart and sort of understood more uh about the things that I was saying and why I was saying them so yeah. I I think we're in a bit of a transition here that she's maybe going to start listening a bit That's, it does <laughs> I remember yeah I remember thinking well my dad will always be like do as I say not as I do you know like just yeah. and I was like well what but now that I, I still play beer league hockey and he always taught me shoot low blocker and I do and it's one of it, it does work so you know parents do know what they're talking about sometimes they do I know uh so <laughs> talking about mentorship who were some of your mentors growing up and and what is your now what is your now approach to mentorship obviously you're a wealth of knowledge and and how do you like spend your time mentoring people and what and what's your approach to to being a mentor now so when I think one of the highlights for me was when we were in juniors and um, we, we won the Canadian juniors in 1994. And so the next curling season, we, uh, we got an opportunity to go over to Switzerland to play in an event. None of us had ever been overseas before. Cool. Uh, so it was a super exciting opportunity and we ended up in this bond spiel. Um, and the other, the other team, the other Canadian team that was there was Sandra Schmurler's team from uh, Saskatchewan, who at that time were two-time two defending Canadian and world champions. So they were someone that, like they were a team that we looked up to and they were successful and everything. And so when we got the chance to go with them to Switzerland, it was, to me, I, I look back at it as a highlight and it was a really cool opportunity because they did invite us, like we did spend some time with them. We went for dinner and it was it was just cool to sort of sit around and chat with them and mm -hmm. realize how down to earth they were and you know they were moms and mm. and they worked and whatever else so when they went on to win the olympics a few years later it was like oh okay maybe you know maybe there's something here maybe you could work toward this when cuz otherwise when i was in juniors i just wanted the chance to go play in the scotties right mm. which was still part of it but um, so I, I, you know, I don't, I don't specifically re remember what they said or what yeah. they did. I think they, they really just, um, had fun with us. Like yeah. they, they just, you know, made jokes with us. And the only other thing I can remember was that they were a little bit like moms to us at the time, mm -hmm. because we had never traveled overseas. So they showed us, you know, how to take the tram to the curling club and, uh, make sure we're hiding our money and like all these things. Right. Um, so I don't remember like specific curling stuff at that time. Um, but it was, they were just inspiring to be around. I remember yeah. feeling, feeling that, you know, and then I think as time went on, um, you know, I ended up going off, I took some time off and I went to college, uh, for journalism. And when I did get back with Jennifer, you know, I think I look back 
not only when I got back with her, but even years ago, I, I think she's, she was a mentor for Mm me. You know, she was a big mentor for me. And I've said this before that Jennifer and I are actually quite different people, but I actually actually think that that's what made it work. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, because we brought something different to the table, but the things that she brought to the table, I think is what she kind of mentored me on, you know, whether it was Mm -hmm. skills or various things. Right. Um, And so I think she was a big mentor for me. And so now, now as I, as I move more into a position of being a mentor, I think really I it's kind of like raising your your kid, right? You you want it to be different for them. Mm-hmm. And so as a mentor, I think I look at it as I want I want you to learn from my experience. Mm-hmm. Right? Both in a positive way and in like the ways that I wish I would have type thing, right? Or regrets yeah. that I had. Um and and I want to be able to share the experiences so that um I mean I'm not complaining I had a million and one amazing amazing experiences mm-hmm. in curling right and and still through all that there's going to be regrets there's going to be things that you wish you would have done differently and mm-hmm. so I want to be able to share my experiences with younger people um to sort of teach them what I wish I would have done. And yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it necessarily like that to them. Right. Yeah. But um, yeah, more so just to, to share my knowledge and, and experience and help them along their journey through sport. For sure. I love what, I love just the thinking about the dynamic between, you know, legendary curler Sandra Schmerler and, and your team, because it, so much of sport and life is just, do you believe that you can do it? Do you believe in yourself that you can achieve it? And seeing you know, people who are a few years older than you and from probably a similar town, similar upbringing, you're like, oh, they can do it. Okay. I can do it too. And I think mentorship is so much about just instilling belief in kids or or whoever you happen to be mentoring that you can do it too. And you just believe in yourself, be confident and have that, have that sort of, uh, that mindset to, to achieve whatever you want to achieve. And I think that's very important. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree with you. And I think part of that is that I think we need, we need to, and this is a, this is a big task, right? But I, I sometimes look at this, even with my daughter, it's like, I, I don't want her to feel the societal expectations that I felt. Mm. Right. And so I want her to be more comfortable with who she is and not be so worried. You're always going to be worried about certain people's opinions of you, right? It's going to be your friends or your family, people that are important to you. You want to know what they think. But outside of that, you know, I, I think that it, if you are constantly worried about what people think about you, we're just putting pressure on ourselves to be something that society wants us to be yeah. um, rather than just being ourselves. And I, I think I learned that through through curling and and the impact that me trying to be comfortable with myself and, and be believe in myself the impact that that had on my performance was actually one of the greatest impacts on my performance. For sure. And I think in the last quadrennial, this was after the Olympics. I think in the last quadrennial, I, I did a better job of, of being myself and mm. trusting myself and my abilities that it actually raised my performance even more. Did, did, did the external expectations and pressure get to, like, did you, did it, 
permeate your psychology when you were, when you were in your prime kind of? Yeah, I think that's natural. Yeah. You know, I think that that's, um, I think that's always going to be the case. I think the key is being aware and mindful of it mm. and then how, how to manage it, like to have strategies to manage it. Because I mean, to this day, I, you know, I still have, you know, there's still those thoughts that go through your mind about, oh, what's this person thinking or, right. you know, various things like that, or, uh, or the, or the societal expectations. And it, and it's like, sometimes you have to separate and think, well, is this my expectation or is this someone else's expectation? Because if it's someone else's expectation, then that's not your problem, <laughs> you know, but I think it, it, so I think it's always a work in progress. It's just something that, uh, you kind you have to consistently be mindful of and be aware that that those are the thought patterns that are in your mind right and, and then and have a tool yeah sorry go ahead sorry i was going to say i think that's a challenge sometimes too is having the ability and practice continually continuously practicing that ability to recognize those thought patterns right and then having a tool so, like whether it's a whatever tools you have in the tool belt to deal with these things when they come up like that's a that's a learned that's learned behavior as well right yeah Right. And I think for, for different people, it's different things. And that this mm. would go back for me, this would go back to mental performance, right? That those would be things that I would talk about with my mental performance consultant or my sports psychologist. Um, some people might choose to write in a journal. Some people might uh, choose to, you know, maybe uh, meditate on it, uh, you know, or some people yep. do a combination of all three, but uh, it's kind of what works for you. And I think for me, it was always talking about it with someone who could help me separate some things, but also maybe take a different perspective. Yeah. Awesome. So what's, I mean, what's, what's next? You, you've, you have such a storied career already. What, what is your focus on for the next 10 years, you know, other than getting your daughter uh, grown and in, into a good adult, you know, like what, yeah. else, what, what else is on the uh, docket? <laughs> That's a, that's a big challenge getting kids grown into well, the, te the teen years are coming. I'm assuming. I know. Was... Oh, I feel like they're already here. She's um, to go. She's 11 or almost 11 going on 16. It's, it's hilarious. Wild. Um, but yeah, I guess my plan, you know, when, when I, when I retired from curling in 2018, that was another transition period for me, uh, that, that was a real challenge. Um, not knowing what I wanted to do, mm. not knowing fully what I felt like I could contribute, whether it was within curling or outside of. And so I tried to take it slow and look at opportunities and take opportunities that were still coming my way. Um, and then one of those things was me potentially going back to school. And then when COVID hit and everything went online, I thought for me in my situation, this is my chance. Mm. Um, so I ended up going back to university. So I'm halfway through my kinesiology degree. Uh, initially, my plan was, and I'm still thinking about it, potentially to go on to do a graduate program in mental performance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so in terms of the future, I, I have, you know, a couple of years left in that, um, potentially more school if I decide to do that. I also, it, this past summer, um, took over for Connie Laliberti at Curl Manitoba. Connie was the longtime high performance manager for the organization and she has retired. Um, and so I took over for her and now I'm uh, running, also running these, uh, these programs uh, in Winnipeg, Dauphin and Brandon. Nice. So, uh, so that's a lot. And then um, 
so, you know, I, I have some thoughts, I guess, about, you know, how we can structure things kind of going forward there um, mm-hmm. over the next five years. Um, and then I'm also currently on, I'm the chair of the athlete commission for the world curling federation. So I have another couple of years, I think left on that term. So that's, uh, you know, some other work to do, but you'll be busy by the sounds of it. (laughs) I am busy, but I think that the thing that when I retired in 2018, I think that the thing, the one thing I knew was that I wanted to stay connected to curling because it was, it was what I knew. It was where there's a certain comfort level there, but I also knew that it was my community. It was my, that was my community of people. Right. And so I think 10 years from now, as you ask, I don't necessarily know what it's all going to look like. You know, maybe I'll still be high performance manager. Maybe I'll be a mental performance consultant. Um, you know, maybe I'll have some role with the World Curling Federation or with Curling Canada. I don't know. But no matter how you look at that, it's still involved in curling. Yeah, you'll still be within that community and strengthening that community. That I mean, that that can should and can be extrapolated for anyone in any community, whether it's a neighborhood or whether it's a sporting organization or anything like that. If you if you spend time strengthening your your community and and feeling that sense of belonging to it, I think that's what life is all about, really. Right. And then it gives you a sense of belonging. Yeah, exactly. Beautiful. Uh, So Jill, I mean, you're so busy. Thank you for your time. At the end of our time together, we do a little segment called Just Because, where it's all about the causes you care about and the effect that it's had on your life. You want to go through those seven questions with us? Yeah, sure. All right. So question one, uh, let me pull, I should know these by heart by now if episode 98, but (laughs) a little slow. Uh, Question one, what is the very first cause you ever remember caring about? Yeah, I think the first cause I remember caring about was Alzheimer's Society. And that was because my my grandma had Alzheimer's. Um, so I think she must have, I don't know, started showing signs when I was a teenager. So I remember, you know, that was it was a tough time mm-hmm. and something that we as a family went through. But I remember learning more about the Alzheimer's Society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were talking a little bit before we started recording. Same same thing. My grandpa was pretty severe, you know, didn't recognize us or anything. And it, it just looking back, remembering back on that and just thinking about it. It's I I, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm biased, but I think it's not the worst disease in the world when it comes to how it affects not only the person, but their families as well. So yeah, I'm sorry, you're going yeah. through that. It's it's brutal. It's brutal. Yeah, it, it is. It's really tough. And it's, um, it's really hard on the the main caregiver, I think, too. And, uh, you know, it's something that my mom has started to struggle with. And I think over over COVID, like that was really that was really, really tough, you okay. know, on my on my dad as yeah. the primary caregiver, um, because, of course, we couldn't help out my siblings and I couldn't right. help out as much. So for sure. Shout out to the caregivers. Jeez. Keeping, mm-hmm. keeping thing, keeping the, keeping things on the rails for sure. Yeah. Uh, so question two, if money, politics, and logistics were no issue at all, what, what's the first thing you would do in support of your current cause? Um, you know, I think, I think actually, I, I, I mean, everybody in this sort of situation would always say, well, find a cure, right? Find a cure. hundred percent. I a hundred percent agree with that. You can find a cure for Alzheimer's. Great. Wonderful. But I also think that, I think that promotion of 
Alzheimer's and what it is. I remember yeah. a while back there was like a, there was a commercial on TV and it was this woman going through the the grocery I don't know if it was a Canadian commercial but she was going through the grocery store line and she couldn't find her keys or her wallet or something mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh and she started to kind of panic and and the cashier ended up helping but basically the idea was you know that this person has dementia and and it can happen anywhere that they have these moments where they they lose sort of you know their yeah their things or they yeah. they start misunderstanding something and I just thought oh this is such a great commercial to really bring awareness to that situation because it's one thing for the family and friends of people who have Alzheimer's to know that they have Alzheimer's mm -hmm. it's another thing when that person still has independence to be going out and doing things um but for you know the the community that deals with them at the store or yeah. at the doctor's office like for them to understand that this like that people that you're dealing with could have Alzheimer's I yeah. thought that that was so I think promotion is a really big thing and and whatever sort of preventative measures are out there in order to uh you know kind of like working out yeah. a few times a week right yeah. and the impact it has on your cardiovascular health or various things like that it's like well what can like more promotion on what we can do to try to prevent the onset of dementia yeah i'm going through that myself right now because i mean my grandpa my dad yep i mean it's pretty inevitable so i'm that's how i justify playing so many video games because i'm like it's just training my brain you know i'm strengthening the <laughs> synapse i don't know the science behind it but i just assume that it's helping yeah <laughs> We'll see. We'll see. Uh, so question three, what's the, We kind of talked about this uh, with, with the education aspect and the promotion of, of just understanding it, but what's the biggest misunderstanding do you think or biggest stigma that you've uh, come across? Yeah. Right. I, I, I mean, it kind of goes back to that uh, dealing with the public, I guess. And I, I don't know if I could pinpoint a certain stigma necessarily. I, I guess, you know what, some people probably, you know, and I mean, we all do it. Maybe we're quick to judge, you know, and so you have someone that you have a um, short interaction with at the mall or, or, or something. And you mm -hmm. think that this person's like so-called crazy. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but I think there's always another story behind it. You and never know what people are going through. Yeah, exactly. You never know what people are going through. And so whether, whether it's someone who has Alzheimer's or someone who does have an, an another mental health issue or, mm -hmm. or something, it's like, uh, people can be quick to judge and they want to kind of get away. And I understand like, but uh, yeah, I think if we could have a little bit more um, understanding and, and kindness toward people who maybe show signs of, of something like that. Very well said. Yeah. Empathy, compassion, the world could always use a little bit more, especially with what we're going through lately, but yeah, yes. great answer. Well said. Uh, question four, what's a recent victory uh, either pre professionally or personally that you can share with us? Um, so being in, in school, um, you get an A plus on, uh, uh assignment recently or, <laughs> well, uh, so, you know, you know what, you know what it's like, uh, when everyone has to take their, uh, statistics class and everybody wants, uh, you know, everybody wants to just pass the class. <laughs> yeah. Right? Get through it. Just got to get through it. <laughs> just got to get through it. And so far I'm, I'm kind of like, I, I feel good. I mean, I still have a final exam that that's probably going to be the hardest of the the three that we've had or three tests that we've had. But so far, I'm like, I've gotten an 80 percent and an 81 on my that's stats test. And I'm like, I am happy with that. That's like huge. that is, you know, 
I, I so I feel like I do actually feel like that's a victory. <laughs> Congratulations. That had happened. Yeah, exactly. That's that's incredible. I, I'm not a numbers guy either. So it's like nope. uh, you just got to slog through it. Uh, question five. What's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? My dad used to say, actually, I have a couple. My dad used to say, my dad played uh, hockey at a reasonably high level when he was young. He was a goalie. Um, but he used, he told me once a long time ago, if you're not nervous, you're not ready. Mm. And I that just always sat with me because, you know, on big game days, um, you know, if I was nervous, I was like, okay, let's go. Like, I'm ready to get out there. And, and I mean, and if I didn't feel nervous, that was a little bit more concerning, but it was also... Um, what do, it was also it also led me to a question of what do I need to do to get ready then if I'm mm. not feeling ready so uh that one always stuck with me if you're not nervous you're not ready and I I still tell my my daughter that uh about some things too and the other one was I had a friend years ago that said well it's better to do something you'll regret than not to do it and regret that later mm. and I know that sounds kind of wordy but um you know and obviously within reason you're not going to yeah. <laughs> you know, major, major risks or something, yeah. but, you know, in a face with a decision, I, I, I sometimes think to myself, well, am I going to regret if I don't do this? Yeah. The regret of not knowing would be way more hard to, de- I mean, like <laughs> hard to deal with than the regret of doing something and not, you know, whatever the, yeah. I agree, and kind I of being like, oh, yeah. maybe, I, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have done that, but okay, yeah. good thing I yeah. tried, right? at least like, you got a lesson out of it or you, know, yeah. you, you learned yeah. something. Yeah. yeah. No, that's well said. Yeah. Very wise, wise advice. So uh, question six on the same advice train, what advice would you give your 10-year-old self if you could go back in time and talk to her? Well, given that I have a 10-year-old daughter right now, she'll be 11 <laughs> in a few weeks, um, kind of, I could probably just repeat my <laughs> repeat everything that I say to her all the time. Um, but I think that I would, I would tell myself to be brave. Hmm. Um, ask lots of questions because there's no shame in asking questions to learn and understand. Um, and I think that I would say, uh, and this goes back to something I already said is kind of worrying less about what people think that are outside of your circle. Yeah. The external BS that's swirling around all the time. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. And, and just like, you know, and I, I, I think about this as she goes into her, like she just started middle school this year. And I, I think about that and her becoming a teenager. And I, you know, we even had a recent conversation that I was trying to encourage her to ask more questions so that she understood what her assignment was, but Mm -hmm. she feels the pressure of being in middle school. And she doesn't want to feel that if she's asking questions that she isn't smart. Mm-hmm. you know, and totally hundred percent normal. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm trying to get her away, you know, so that's why I think I tell, I would tell myself that too, yeah. because now it's funny. I I'll ask all sorts of questions in, in my classes or elsewhere to make sure that I have a clear understanding and I don't care if it sounds like a dumb question, Yeah. Uh, but I know it took me a long time to get to that as well. Um, and, but the funny thing is I usually end up getting feedback saying, oh, you asked such good questions. Oh, I was thinking the same thing. I'm glad you asked that. Right. Exactly. So I, I always think to myself, I know I'm not the only one in this classroom that is thinking this same thing. Yep. So I'm just going to ask it because I want to understand. Love it. That's perfect. Yeah. Great advice. Uh, last question. Final question. What do you want to be remembered for? 
I want to be remembered more for the person that I am. Um, like I want to be remembered for being kind and thoughtful, uh, empathetic, fun, <laughs> uh, and, you know, fun and sometimes goofy and just kind of for who I am as a person and what, what sort of uh, connection I had with people or how I, I left people feeling, but doing that while I've been able to be myself. Love it. Jill officer. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. 2014 Olympic gold medalist world champion jet setter traveling all over the world, kicking ass and curling, taking names. Thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your story at the endow conference. That was very inspiring. Everyone was just like blown away by your story and by your, your speech. And, uh, yeah, it was great. Um, if people want to, you know, hear more about your story, where is, do you have a website or can they go somewhere to, to learn more? I do not have a website, but I have uh, all the social media. Um, so I'm on Instagram and Twitter uh, uh, at Jill Officer. Um, Perfect. Yeah, so you can find me there. Jill Officer, thank you for being on the podcast. Good luck on your finals. I hope you uh, can maintain that 80 in stats. And uh, yeah, good luck with your kinesiology, g kinesiology degree. And uh, thanks for being on the pod. Thank you for having me. Thank you again to Jill Officer for being on the podcast. I think off the top of my head, she's the fourth Olympic champion that we've had on Because and Effect. So really cool to get a, a, an inside look inside the mind of a world champion. And I strangely find it pretty comforting or like it's a relief to know that even in the mind of like champions, the best in the world, they still have that self-doubt. They still have that anxiety. They still, you know, get nervous and, and are listening to all the naysayers and, and have those those challenges that we all do. So thank you, Jill, for your vulner vulnerability today and your candid answers and uh, just a wonderful conversation. Much appreciated. All music on our show is produced and composed by Trenton Burton. You can check him out on Spotify. And Because and Effect is a podcast of the Winnipeg Foundation. Learn more about the foundation by following us on social media at WPGFDN or by going to WPGFDN.org. I'm Nolan Bicknell signing off. We'll see you next time. And remember, the richness in life lies in memories we've forgotten. Bye-bye.